Howdy, I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and together we are laying the groundwork for generations to come. One of the things I've really loved about this spate of podcasts at the beginning of the year is that they're very focused on history. And as we focus on biology and regenerative agriculture and nutrition and spirituality even and and sort of the art of what it is to be human – this has been a new exploration for me, and this episode is no different. I was so excited to dig in with Brian Sanders, who you might know as Food Lies on Instagram, or maybe you've seen hints of his upcoming documentary with the same title, Food Lies, really exposing the machinations of how our food system ended up where we did. And last week we had on James Connolly, and I think in a lot of ways, he ended up laying a lot of the groundwork for this conversation. And this conversation is going to build on a lot of these historical themes. And one of the things, and I didn't plan this, that is most fascinating to me is that they don't overlap, but they very much really create this whole picture of the recent history in the last 150 years of how our current food paradigm really came into existence. And I think that this is incredibly important for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's really important to kind of consider how we got here. Because in having all of these conversations about how we, how we might shift the paradigm and how we might create alternative systems, it's important to understand the foibles of what has happened. And I think it's also important to understand what we're up against. And so that's kind of that second point is that this behemoth, what Anthony Gustin called while he was on this podcast, the corporate organism that has been created is, is something that we have to understand. And I think understand as, as much as possible. And so these, these two episodes really give us a lot of historical context for how our food and healthcare system really got to where they are. And I'm just, I'm so excited to bring you these. And I think, in particular, this episode with Brian was really exciting. Number one, Brian Sanders and his podcast Peak Human is prolific. He's had incredible guests on and absorbed so much of their knowledge. His lines of inquiry are really fantastic as he explores this through the limbs of the Food Lies documentary. And he's, he's really digging deep. Here on this podcast, him and I were kind of live 
troubleshooting some ideas. Like we were drawing some conclusions together as we were moving through the conversation. And that's the real magic of podcasting to me is that I can lay out this outline for a conversation. And sometimes it goes that way. And sometimes it goes completely differently. And sometimes there's really a meeting in the middle where a conversation happens and some real salient points start to get created in real time. And this is, this is one of those podcasts, which makes it a, a really big gift. So I encourage you all to give it a good listen through. We definitely cover a wide gamut of a lot of different topics. And I think everything really comes together at the end. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Please let me know. Before we get started, we just have a couple of accounting things to cover together. And one of them is a conference called What Good Shall I Do? put on by the folks at Force of Nature Meets. Now, I'm not a fangirl. And Force of Nature invited me down to do a butchery demo with them at the beginning of December, which we'll talk more about in an upcoming episode. But I went in without many expectations, which is often how I go into things. And what I found was just the most stunning, wonderful, warm, welcoming, knowledgeable group of people I think I have ever encountered. And I instantly became a fangirl of this group of humans that is putting together Force of Nature meets. And if you've seen them online or in the grocery store, they have really fantastic ground meats with organ blends. They are doing a lot of good work for ground meat. And I am very passionate about that. But they put on a conference. And this year, is their second annual conference. And it is a really incredible space to explore the community above ground as well as the community below ground that exists in the soil and to really access Mother Nature's capacity for healing. And it's going to be ranchers and nutritionists and consumers and biologists, everybody coming together to really talk about this space really that we're all in and that we're all interested in here at Mind, Body, and Soil together. And, you know, I'm going to be speaking. So that's a pretty, pretty motivating reason to be there as well as giving a butchery demo with my husband, Josh. But Ann Bickley, who was a guest on the podcast, is going to be there. Judith Schwartz, Joel Salatin, Kelly Levesque. Like there is just a really fantastic lineup here. And so we'll have a link to that below. I don't make any money off of this. I just actually am really encouraging everybody to come and partake in community. If you've been on the fence about this event, now is the time. Um, and so this is, this is just my little public service announcement. And our next bit is just Hey, we're here. We've switched over from the Groundwork podcast to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. And I am so excited for this year's slate of guests. We have some incredible people coming up. And I just want to take a moment and thank you for listening over the last nine months and for being here for the evolution into the Mind, Body, and Soil. We're going to be exploring even more with some incredible guests as well as just with me. And if the show is resonating with you, if you could just 
hit subscribe and maybe drop a rating and review in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, so that other listeners can can find this podcast. It's just a little act of reciprocity in this space. And I really appreciate it. Okay. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Let's dig into this incredible episode with Brian Sanders of the Peak Human podcast, of Food Lies documentary and Instagram, and the Sapien Center down in Austin, as well as Nose to Tail, where you can get all kinds of amazing regeneratively raised, grass-fed, ground meats, and so much more. Let's go. So we find ourselves in the dark nights of winter, and when that's the case, our bodies are naturally producing more melatonin. And I love to support that cycle even more by using a little bit of hacks that help with my circadian biology. And my favorite company for this is Boncharge, or Boncharge, however you want to pronounce it. And I have been using them since 2019 when I bought my first pair of blue light blocking glasses that are still going strong. Now, what I'm using these days to help create a space that is circadian friendly are Boncharge's incredible light bulbs that are daylight appropriate. So they have several different colors of bulbs ranging from from daylight to amber to red. They are all flicker free, which is something that's so important to me when we're talking about LEDs and they are free of blue light. That flicker free means that there's no flicker that is going to be sub-perceptual. It's not going to be something that we notice, but our bodies do notice it and it can lead to low-level activation of our sympathetic nervous system, something that I'm definitely looking to avoid. And so we have decked out our house in Bone Charge's incredible red lights, which is what we turn on when we come back from doing chores in the evening when the sun has set, to really prime our bodies for great sleep. Sleep is at the crux of the most important practice in my life. And so getting great sleep is just so important to me. And that's why I trust Bone Charge with my light environment. And if I am going to do work on a screen after dark, and I really want to help with that melatonin cycle, which blue light disrupts because it sends our body that signal that it's the middle of the day, I use my blue light blocking glasses. They have a fantastic sleep mask that I use at night to create darkness for myself. And I just think that this is a great company. You can get 15% off your first order using the code MINDBODYSOIL15. That's the name of this podcast, MINDBODYSOIL15 for 15% off your first order of circadian biology supporting goodies from light bulbs to blue light blocking glasses to daytime blue light blocking glasses and everything else by just going to bonecharge.com. Like I said, been using this company for four years and I trust them completely. So get 15% off your first order with the code MindBodySoil15. 
Hi, Brian. It's just such a pleasure to be here with you today. Hello. I'm so glad to be here, Kate. <laughs> I wanted to, I, I really thought a lot about this interview and really exploring how food makes us human. And I wanted to start us off with talking about your human journey with food and what brought you to this place. Yeah, it's been a nine year journey for me. I kind of got woken up when I turned 30 and I lost my parents around that same time. And it was also when I turned 30 and I couldn't eat whatever I wanted anymore. And I got by for a, a long time. I think a lot of people get by, especially because I was an athlete my whole life and always playing sports and active. So you kind of can stay relatively thin and relatively in shape. But I was just getting all these problems that people get as they age. And I thought it was normal. You know, I thought it was normal to have indigestion and heartburn and joint problems and just all kinds of things and allergies. I'd had allergies my whole life and all these little things that and just getting a dad bod and all these kinds of things. And then I changed my diet, which we can get into later, but everything changed. I just made a simple switch in my diet. Every, all those problems went away. My allergies went away that I've had my whole life. They can come back. If I eat a piece of bread, even if it's sourdough, I, I'll have allergies the next day. I'm just finding that out. I have like the last remnants of little allergies from Thanksgiving weekend. It's, in it's incredible how much just just a little bit off will shift everything. I experience that all the time in my, my diet. And I'll venture just a little bit off the beaten path and find these downstream effects that surprise me. It's crazy. And then I realized that, oh, wait, that's people just don't even know that they feel off or sick or halfway, you know, 50, 60 percent their whole life. Because I was that. I was just going down this road where... I was just going to get worse and worse. I was going to get on medications, I'm sure. And I would just have never have known. So I don't, yeah, I don't take any over-the-counter medications. I don't take any other medications. I just don't see a doctor. Everything's changed in the last nine years. And part of that story is my parents, like I said, cancer, Alzheimer's. That was a big wake-up call. How do I not fall to the same fate? And I, I looked at what they did, especially retrospectively now that I know more. And it was confusing because they followed all the right things. They followed the government guidelines. They followed the food pyramid. It's like, it's amazing. People say, oh, no one follows the food pyramid. I'm like, oh, absolutely. This is just common knowledge. Every It goes, it's not like people look up the food pyramid and then post it on their fridge. But it's you learn about in school, all of the doctors repeat it. Everything in society just is built around it. And we were eating seven to eleven servings of whole grains. We're doing we're cooking our own food, doing all that stuff, you know, low fat products, lean chicken, avoiding red meat, everything. Everything that the food bureau said we did, the fruits and vegetables, absolutely everything didn't go out to eat. It was a huge treat to go out to eat. Yet they still ended up with these problems of, and I think cancer and Alzheimer's are very, very diet related. Maybe not absolutely. all of them, right? Yeah. But so, I mean, people listening probably know this, but if you just, you know, talk to a random person off the street, they'd be like, oh, well, that's just genetic. And I'm saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There, there's way more to it, as you know, and we can get into that stuff too. But I, I wanted to figure out how I could change my diet and lifestyle so that I, even if I did have certain, you know, genetics that I wouldn't express those genes and I would not have those problems. And so far it's looking like all that stuff is working out. So that's my origin story. I love your origin story. And I've listened to you talk about this on a couple of other podcasts. And I wonder if I might ask you a personal question that you can kind of beg off if you don't want to answer it. But we've been talking a lot about grief on this podcast and its ability to 
transform the roads that we take in our life. And I feel like you have this real crossroads with your parents passing and it changing your trajectory from mechanical engineer into this whole world of food and nutrition. Yeah, it was a huge change in my life, but I don't know if I've even dealt with this grief yet. And I, yeah, I haven't really talked about it publicly, but I, I'm not afraid to talk about it. I actually went to some sort of wellness event last weekend in Austin and, and first started talking about stuff. It was very interesting to, to share with other people these things about my family and that I, I never do address maybe. And, and I told them, you know, I've never been to a therapist. I've never talked to anyone about any of this stuff. And they were all just like, you need to. This It's very effective. It's It's very powerful. And Maybe I still need to do something, but I guess my way of dealing with it was to go down this path and dedicate my life to this. And just, I really just quit all that whole world. After mechanical engineering, I got into tech and I learned a lot about, you know, design and tech and all this stuff that helped me. But I could have, you know, just had a six figure salary and gone on with my life. But instead, I said, let's do this. Let's make a film. Uh, the documentary is called Food Lies. It's been six years in the making. And that's what set me down this path. And that, yeah, I guess that's what it's been consuming my life is this health stuff. It's it's what I do from when I wake up until I go to sleep. <laughs> and <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I've put other things aside. I've put relationships aside. I've put all kinds of stuff aside just to do this. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, because this is this is big work. I want to get into this. And I so I was going through your work. The thing that really stands out to me is how often you reference human and whether it's your podcast, Peak Human, or your new Sapien Community Center, there are these references back to being human. And of course, Sapien meaning wisdom or wise or one who knows. I wanted to dive into this human relationship to food. I think a lot about how our relationship to food is really what makes us human. Whether you take an evolutionary stance and you look at how eating meat changed our brain capacity, or you look at how the dawn of agriculture 10,000 years ago began to shift what it meant to be human and got into the realms of sociopolitical things with food. That food was really a driver for for wars, for taxes, for ways of moving across the planet. And so I'd, I'd love to look through your lens of what is this relationship between being human and food? Yes, it's such a big story. And I learned a lot along the way from some great people, especially Dr. Bill Schindler. I give him a shout out. He's a he's an anthropologist, archaeologist, food scientist, author. You know, he's been on my show a couple of times. He's in the film. But he taught me that the story of human being human is food like they are one and the same. It's like every technology that we developed up until, you know, more recently has been revolved around food. Almost everything. Even the wheel is probably, how do we carry food better? <laughs> you know, everything <laughs> we've developed is around food. And he, he, he studies this. He's obsessed with it. You should have him on your show. He will tell you all about that it's either about acquiring food or preparing food. That That is every technology that we, humans have developed really until, you know, whatever year. And it's either a hunting technology. What are the first technologies? Just hunting, right? It's um, and then with the plant foods, it's about acquiring, gathering. It's about detoxifying plant foods. He gets really into all the measures that ancient cultures and modern cultures that still do traditional methods use to prepare the foods properly. I mentioned sourdough as 
the correct way to eat bread and no one eats like the real sourdough these days stuff in the store is fake it just has citric acid in it to make it taste sour it's not actually fermented you know and stuff like this Wild. so i didn't yeah i didn't know any i didn't know that until i heard you say that on a podcast and i was like oh yeah okay and no wonder everyone's having problems with bread. You know, I still don't eat bread, even if it is sourdough, because I found it still doesn't work. And then you can get into the gut microbiome and all kinds of gut stuff and how that's probably the center of all disease is, you know, how our gut interacts with food. And it makes sense, too. It's like what interacts with the world. It's like your GI tract is open to the outside world and food contacts at the most. You're eating kilogram quantities of food every day. And people are just like, eh, calories a calorie. <laughs> Does it, you know, it's just about eating fewer calories. Like you're insane. This is your entire body is interacting with this food on a daily basis. And it's, I mean, just think of the surface area alone. Yes. I wish I had these quotes of like how, you know, like the small intestine, it's like tennis how many court. tennis courts. Yeah. I, I think it's a full tennis court, the small intestine. And this is, I mean, it's an elegant conversation that's happening between our environment and our biology through the medium of food. And there is this deep intimacy of what you're talking about, that our GI tract is open to the outside world, that that is still the outside of our body. And here we are taking in food and it's interacting and all of its chemicals. If we're talking about bread, we're usually talking about glyphosate and it's sending and relaying information about what time of year it is and where we are. And it's a huge rabbit hole that I don't know if anyone has figured out yet, right? All this stuff with the gut and we're, we're getting more into it now and we're realizing like leaky gut or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and all these things where you, the, these tight junctions in of our membranes of our you know intestines are opening up because of these different foods and how we've modified these grains and whether it be the, the glyphosates we put on it or just the, the amount of gluten that we've bred into these new types of grains so that they're bigger and hardier and, you know, all these things that have helped us get more food. But yeah, to go back a little more into the, the food story, you mentioned so many other things that it's shaped society. And we are covering this in the film. And I, I think it's really interesting to look back at how we got here. And how do we how did we get to this crazy world that we're in now with the crazy food system and people, normal people eating 80% of their diet from processed foods. And just how, how do we get this? And big pharma, sick care system, all this stuff is guided by food. And it does go back to when we first domesticated grains, actually. It's also to do with the processing and, and profits in the processing. And that's something that I think we'll mention a lot today because I learned more about it. And I'm sure you've learned about it, trying to sell well-raised meat. And that there's no profit margin. No. So it, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I'm about to end my relationship with some of these ranchers because I can't make any money trying to sell good meat to people. And that's when I realized how much the processing matters and how much the, like if you take the cheapest ingredients possible and the most abundant ingredients and the unhealthiest ingredients, which is the refined grains, the seed oils and added sugar. It's like these three things make up again, I'll throw out a number 80 percent of foods of processed food. And they're the cheapest three ingredients are the most shelf stable and they are the worst for us. And that's how people make money. And if you wanted to make money, you could just start some company instead of a good regenerative meat company, you could start some bar. It's like, oh, I'm gonna make a keto bar and it's gonna have, 
you know, all these cheap ingredients, it's going to cost like $3 a bar. It's going to cost like 28 cents to make. And then there's a huge profit margin. And then we can do some advertising. We could do all kinds of things. And then I just really put it all together. This Okay, so this is how the world works. This is why the same like eight companies own the entire food system and why they can fund anything they want, do lobbying, do whatever they can to keep the systems the same. I want to tease something out because this was actually on my list to talk to you about. You know, I own a whole animal butcher shop and we've been in business for 10 years and we only source whole animals and it's all regenerative and grass fed and you own Eat Nose Detail and you're helping bring regenerative ranchers to people's doorsteps. And there is no financial incentive to do so. And in fact, I think it's incredibly difficult to make it work. And I know that we have held on by the skin of our teeth as a business over the last 10 years. And I'm sure we'll get into this more in the podcast, but financial incentive, I think, is what has driven a lot of where we are today in food. And it's interesting to look at it from the opposite lens of trying to do the best thing and having it be incredibly difficult. Well, now I know why no one does it. And even people in the space, I'm trying to, you know, not go bankrupt. I'm trying to actually just support myself so, so I can we? make the film, right? Yeah. And, and uh, all I want to do is make the film, do podcasts and, you know, do content on this to wake people up. And so I need to obviously pay my rent and bills. And now I realize why everyone else in the space made, I don't know, liver pills, like <laughs> highly processed product. I'm not... I'm not against them and I'm friends with those guys, but it's like, it's something that costs $54 and it's like a ground up liver that's could cost you $1. So I get it now. And to tie up what I was saying before, going back into history, I, I always love to go talk about the Egyptian days. You know, that's when this, this first kind of power structures even developed and shaped society where people could tax and store these products and accumulate wealth. And that was the first time that we went away from the more egalitarian societies where people were pretty equal. And we had, you know, hunter gatherer tribes of different sizes. And maybe there, you know, there were surely some sort of different hierarchies, but nothing compared to what happened when we process all the grains and tax them and store them. And so there's the pharaohs and then there's the peasants and there wasn't many people in between. And when I look at society today, it's actually pretty much the same. And people don't really realize it. You know, it's kind of when you pop out of the matrix, I feel like a lot of people have been coming out of the matrix in the past couple of years. Uh, I call it, you know, getting red pill. That's the same thing, right? You take the red pill instead of the blue pill. You realize, oh, wait a second. Our world is still in the same power structure of people at the top pulling all the strings and a whole bunch of peasants basically trying to survive. So I don't know if you, how I think you agree. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. And I think that that's, that's a really important lens to look through is that this is that same structure, that hierarchical structure. And I go back to this idea that, you know, around the same time that Earl Butts was the Secretary of Agriculture in the 70s and said to get big or get out, Henry Kissinger, who's controversial in his own right, but was the Secretary of State. And he said, control oil and you control nations, control food and you control people. And I think that when you look at history, whether you're looking at the Egyptians or um, Mark Kurlansky does a beautiful job in his book, Salt, of covering how how salt was used to control people and taxes that you see that food was used as a mechanism of control and also of division between classes. 
And it still is. And it and still, it still is. is. And that's why I think most people listening see this. And, you know, my crowd sees the writing on the wall. You know, I, I post about this stuff about all, you know, the fake meat. It's the beyond meats, but then it goes into the cell derived meats, you know, the actual, uh, grow, you know, lab grown meat that goes into pushing of bugs. You know, and people say, oh, the, you guys are so stupid. You guys are your bug conspiracy theories. No one's going to make you eat bugs. Like, I'm not saying that that's happening today or that. I mean, I think they are. Yeah, I think that it definitely is heading that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they're setting this up. And I, you know, I had Tara Couture on the podcast and we talked about legislation, the way that legislation is going in Canada or New Zealand or Ireland, where they're beginning to tax cattle just from small farmers from homesteaders even uh for their for their climate emissions that this is all part of moving us towards eating eating bugs eating more processed food that is making us sicker and is making us more complacent maybe more sedentary and changing our biology like to get back to that first idea that food is what shapes our human organism i think that it shaped it positively as it helped our brains grow and change us. And now it's having a negative impact on the human organism. All those things, plus testosterone for men, it's got it's like half of what it was just a yes. few cent, a few decades ago. I mean, people, this is an accident. That's what I found. And I'm glad you talked to Tara. Tara's the greatest person ever. She's in the ever. film. I did the her first. I, I put her on her first podcast ever five years ago. It was amazing. I, I found her from Instagram and her amazing nutrient dense meals. And and actually, the great. As someone asked me recently, what was the greatest meal of my life? And I said we filmed with Tara Couture three years ago, for three and a half years ago, and it happened to be on my birthday. And she made me two meals that were like unbelievable. There is no amount of money that could have covered these meals. Everything was raised by her own hands and from her own. Own land and it was absolutely incredible and there was like 30 different dishes that she you know she's prepared anyway life life-changing meal but it goes back to these systems of control around food i mean i guess we're talking to the right crowd where we don't have to sound like conspiracy theorists that this is tactics that have been used to control people forever and like i said it's it's on purpose i think it's like i don't think once i looked into this simple science of red meat being healthy and having tons of nutrients that are bioavailable and all the things we need to survive and now there's this big carnivore community that's just showing the world that you could just just eat meat and survive and do amazing and and be healthy i'm like okay so this is just basic science that this is healthy and the entire world is telling us that it is bad for us from from the top down right all the powers that be now that's how i know there's something going on you know it's not like oh let's look at something it's like they're they're trying to say that french fries are healthy and then we're like oh, i don't know if french fries are healthy you know what i mean it's like it's so opposite that it has to be rigged i agree I'm, i mean you're taking the most nutrient dense food on the planet and you're vilifying it and i actually i have this question for you because one of the things that's been percolating for me, and I think obviously these systems of control around food have been in place throughout history, and we point at a lot of different points in time. But I have this question, you know, as, as your account is called Food Lies and the film is called Food Lies, where does a lie start? And one of the things I've really noticed, especially around meat and its vilification in the media, is that while they're 
there was groundwork, whether you're talking about Ansel Keys or whatever it was, there were these kind of these initial things that started us off down the road, maybe. But then it gets parroted and people stop using their own judgment and looking at these these truths, and this is in quotation marks, these truths about food and really reconciling it with their own, through their own logic, through their own common sense. And it just gets parroted over and over again. And so there's this question of what is the engine driving the lies in the food system? Like, how do these lies start? Yeah, you're right. What there was a, like a foundation of lies that with Ansel Keys and there's this whole era in the 50s and 60s where it all started. And, you know, we covered that in the film and then they're perpetuated. Then they get into the medical books and then, you know, it's, it takes generations to undo that basically. And maybe we're seeing a little bit of that being undone lately. But I think it, it starts way before that. Uh, so I got red pilled even more in the past three years. And I started to look back and kind of understand more about how the world works. And I kind of realized more about that there there aren't any accidents, that everything is headed in the same direction. Like with the climate stuff mixed with which gets into the carbon credits and like there's so much that that touches. I don't know if people understand how how big of a tactic the climate stuff is. And sure, no one wants to ruin the climate. Or you know what I mean? I mean, completely separate things. Like, yes, of course, we're not we don't want to just pollute the world. We're just going to have factories polluting everything. We're just going to have like factory farms just like just having run off. You know, we don't obviously want that. But people don't understand what a tool, how big a tool this was. And I actually just was watching videos on this last night about climate scientists speaking out on it. She was kicked out of, you know, all of her academic jobs and system and she had to go off on her own because she's not following the narrative and she says the same thing yeah of course we're not advocating for just destroying the planet and just doing you know terrible practices but this is not at all what it seems to be this is a tactic a tool for control to centralize power and this stuff started in before even before i'll just go back to 1980s because that's what this certain one was talking about it's like there wasn't even a big like sea level rise or co2 problem whatever they're trying to say that happened in 1980. Yet they already had meetings and policies about this. And on the world scale, we're talking the UN and, you know, the WHO and these big figures to start implementing these things because they understood that if we can use this giant looming destruction of the world as a tool, we can gain power and centralize systems and govern the world on the world level. And they and I like to watch these videos of people talking about this stuff, about the, people admitting that there was, you know, world government goals and you know people like to call these conspiracy theories the new world order or the great reset is the new thing this is not a conspiracy this is happening right in front of us and it's been documented and there's great books about this and there's so many tangents we can go on even with the medicine side rockefeller medicine i don't know if you've heard about this there's like a whole kind of documentary on that on how the rockefellers shaped the medical system into the sick care system and how this was purposefully this was all documented by certain people that you know no one knows about this unless you dig around that this sick care system we have was by design that they the the Rockefeller group and you know some others realized the potential of pharmaceuticals drugs and petroleum based drugs and surgeries for money making and they pretty much stamped out any natural healers and they basically coined the term quack like quackery calling Interesting. 
quack. Well, yeah, that was a propaganda technique. It was actually invented as a way to to discredit any natural healing methods or natural doctors. And it survives today. I And I think there's something interesting in everything that you're saying, too, is that one of the things that I think is incredibly insidious about the way that that this has been, I'm going to say orchestrated, is that it's changed our beliefs about what it is to be human, right? That we believe, and I think that this is the narrative that's being fed to us, that we are a scourge on the earth. And this is the fault of the individual, that climate change is, is on you. If you would just drive an electric car, which I mean, that that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> Pandora's yeah. box we could open, um, or eat less Just meat eat. or yeah. stop using straws, then all of this could change when, you know, if that's happening, it, it's happening at the corporate level, not at the individual level. And so there's this big, like they have shifted our beliefs that we don't belong here on earth as humans, that we're not a part of the environment. There's this constant separating of us from nature, from the environment and increasing that schism. Yes. Yes. And that's what I found. And the more you look into it, the more you see it. And then it becomes clear that, like I said, none of this was an accident, that they are trying to push us away from understanding where our food is from, push us away from, you know, growing our own food. That solution is always, let's do it for you. We we have it under control. We're going to give you the processed food, the, the new soy burgers or the, the milk alternatives. We have the solution. Another thing I like to say is how I know it's all fake is that their solutions always skip the, the real solution and go straight to something they can make money on. So it's like, oh, feedlots are bad. Completely skip regenerative ag. The stuff, you know, completely skip over. So they never talk about things that we've been doing forever. And they'll just be like, so this, so feedlots bad, soy burgers good, right? They completely skipped it to something that they sell. And this is always the case. It's the same thing we're saying. Blaming on the in individual is a huge tactic. It's like there's these subversion tactics that are used to like control societies at large. And the, and yes, if 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 it's you, you're the problem. You skip the solution, right? Skipping the solution of going back to being a human, like living closer to the land, closer to how your food is grown, and just you can't use straws or you have to drink fake milk, right? It, it always skips a problem into something they're selling. I think that's really, that's a really salient point. I love that you pointed that out. And I, I want to pull the sick care system back into it because I think that it's vertical integration at its worst, right? It's the, it's the idea that if you make a corn chip, if a corn chip company and an anti-diarrheal medication are owned by the same parent company, then what if they were inclined to make the corn chips give you diarrhea, right? That, that you are then going to be dependent. And if you create a food system that is making people sick and then you offer the solution in the form of pharmaceutical drugs, sounds like a pretty good system to me from a profit standpoint. It's genius. It's genius. I'm actually going to post something today. Someone sent me a video. It's like some stupid like TikTok video, but it's really good. Or Instagram videos. It's do you want to be part of the solution or part of the problem? Why not both? And it's Bayer Monsanto, right? And it, it was a little there's a more to it, but Bayer <laughs> Monsanto. Well, they're the same company now. They, yep. uh, you know, who acquired who, but 
that's exactly what's going on. And it's our entire world works like that. You can look at any system and it'll be like that. And and I love to get into this stuff. It's like, why is our education system like this? Why is it so bad? Why is it just pumping out people who who can't think critically, who just are following the same narrative, who are canceling each other, all this stuff. Then I read a book, Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And this woman, Charlotte Iserby, researched this from the early 1900s. And again, this is not like a fictional book or narrative book. It's just documented quotes and excerpts of this education system being shaped in a certain way. And she goes back to 1900. And it's like she talks about how they just wanted basically worker bees. They wanted people to not critically think. And they were successful. Well, I, I read the first half of this book and it blew my mind. And I'm thinking about the people, same groups of people, these huge tycoons, you know, the Rockefellers and the, all these people you've heard of with all the money that had all the oil and the, the steel money back in the beginning of, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, shaped this to their advantage. And how successful it was that I think about how our education system is now, especially our universities that are just so, I don't know, I don't want to get political, but they... They would be rolling in their graves if they saw what was going on today because they would never have, or actually I would say they'd be laughing. I mean, I mean, they would be cackling at the success of what they put. Just read some of this book. You can get it on online for free. It's a free PDF. It's hard to read like a free, like some, it's very dry reading, but it's amazing. They're like, this is what was set up. This is not an accident. This is designed to create worker bees. It's called Skinnerian tactics, which is how you train a dog, which is basically like get a treat for doing something and just memorizing things, essentially. And so much can be learned from history. And we got onto this topic because you asked about, the, like, when did the lies start? And it definitely wasn't Ansel Keys, you know, that's when in the 50s and 60s, Eisenhower had a heart attack. And, the, and you know, the whole thing was, OK, what are we going to do? What's the heart disease was just becoming a problem. Actually, what was the problem? People were smoking and and just the, the seed oil. So the, the margarine, the Crisco, all this stuff just came out in the 1918, somewhere around then. And it just became a big part of the diet in the 40s, 50s, right? This is what the first wave of disease coming from the hydrogenated oils and Crisco's and margarines and all that, plus smoking. Everyone, you know, seen the clips of those days. They're like smoking in the car, smoking in the elevator, smoking in their baby's room. And and then they're wondering why there's heart disease. So that, I mean, the, the big lie started way before that. And again, if in every system, like I said, food system, the education system, the banking system, if you want to look into that, look into the Federal Reserve and how that mm -hmm. was created and oh, how yeah. that is not part of the government that was like basically hijacked. And I need to get my years right. Maybe it was 1914. This group I think of it was 1917. 1917. Jekyll Island. Jekyll Island. This group of bankers t hijacked the system. Basically, they're so powerful that they could take over. Basically, just take over Congress. This all happened also during Christmas. It was like it was this whole thing when um, people were out of town and away, and they like kind of passed through this law and took the Federal Reserve out from the government and made it, it's basically a private institution that controls the whole monetary system. So you have the monetary system, you have the education system, which, you know, you can read about and see how that was controlled. We have the food and the farming and then the pharmaceutical system. And you can you look into the, you know, the Rockefeller stuff and Rockefeller medicine. If you search that keyword, it might be hard to find, maybe we can link to it. But then you realize that every system 
is just controlled from it. I think it started in, the, I don't know how far back you can go. Definitely the late 1800s, the early 1900s, a lot of this stuff started. And again, not an accident. It was designed and orchestrated. And I, and one reason, the simple way to kind of know this is it always went in their favor. If you could think of anything, you take anything and then say, would it go this way or would it go that way? If it was just by chance, it should all, it should go, you know, either side. But 100% of them go to big centralization side, right? Every time it goes to the right side that they want. Yeah. And you have this perfect storm. And I mean, when you put it together like that and you pull in these pieces, you pull in the education system. I had on a, a guest, his name is Will Roosh. He's a, he's a high school teacher out in LA and, and really big into heterodox thinking and really teaching kids how to be curious, not teaching them what to think, but teaching them how to think. And this is something that we've really missed in our education system. And here we find ourselves sick, obese, uh, testosterone at a precipitous decline. And the system has been set up for, for failure, for centralization. And I, I, I'm honestly a little bit at a loss for words because as you, as you speak about skipping that step, I see something that I hadn't really seen before that we're constantly skipping over what feels like the next logical step in favor of feeding profits. And I think that while it might have started in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the groundwork was laid for that historically. I mean, when we're talking about the the withholding and taxation of salt, or we're talking about grains in, in Egypt being a part of the diet of slaves and very profitable, the basis for that is there. It is. It is. And when you once you kind of realize this is how the world works, it's kind of sad and it, it hurts you and you, you're trying to figure out what to do about it. And it's really hard because you have to go against these huge systems and huge powers. But the, the really the answer always is to go away from the centralization. It's always going away from this new system they want to set up to being human again. And that is a tagline. Speaking of Dr. Bill Schindler, I mean, his tagline is eat like a human again, you know, but it's like everything is just that answer is to do it how our ancient ancestors did it and not that I am you know I, I think some people make fun of people who are into ancestral diets or looking to the past because they're just like oh yeah we're gonna just go wear a loincloth and go in a cave <laughs> and, you know and they try to minimize it that it obviously we're not saying that obviously we're saying there's a way to do both and live in a modern society but look to the past for the solutions and it's look to the decentralized method of of everything would be the solution or the just the more what's good for the individual is not good for the powers that be or if you think of all these things it's actually a bigger topic that I, i'm still getting my head around is the greater good the concept of the greater good is a weapon that's used against us it was used against us in the past three years Everything that was, was supposed to be done under the guise of greater good. Climate change, you have to do it for the greater good. You know, eat eat this rice and beans instead of meat for the greater good. Everything. And take this pharmaceutical drug for the greater good. For the greater good. And it's but you have to 
just look at what's good for the mat. I mean, it's a weapon because you could easily think, yeah, but it is for the greater good. Or I should think about my neighbors. You can't get caught up in that thinking. You have to think of your like the opposite is usually what's better for the individual. And by serving individuals health and wellness and well-being in your family and friends, you can affect the greater good by being healthier. Hopefully this makes sense. I, I love to talk about how, how to feed the world. A great friend, um, Dr. Oh, he's from, he's from Tens, Tasmania. He's from, uh, what is that? Gary Fetke. I don't know if you come across this guy, Dr. Gary Fetke. He looked into the beginning of veganism and why, how it, it came about. And he, he traced it back to the late 1800s with a woman, Ellen G. White and the Seventh Day Adventist Church. It's an amazing story. Listen to my podcast with him. It's F-E-T-T-K-E, Dr. Gary Fecky. But he, people always ask, okay, so how do we feed the world, right? You're into regenerative ag, you're into eating local seasonal foods, whole foods, all that. How do you do that? said, you can't think about feeding the world. No one can think that big. You think you feed your community and by default, you fed the world. Think, think about that. If every community fed themselves, you would have just fed the world, right? You can't, like, when you start thinking about feeding the world on a mass scale, you're screwed. Then you send sacks of grains to Africa. That's not how you feed the world. Sending sacks of grains to Africa is what we try to do in the 90s. The, I don't know if you remember that. There was, like, commercials for, you know... At, on TV to, you know, send you know, for a dollar a day, you can feed this. That was a nightmare. It's basically just pumping Monsanto, like GMO grains and all these different things that screwed them, right? It yes. screwed them. They I have create- a, I, in this feed the world category, I have a butcher friend in South Africa. And I don't know if people know this, but we send a lot of our chicken hindquarters across the world because we only boneless, skinless chicken breasts here in the United States. Not saying the listeners of this show, but as a general rule of thumb. And she had this whole saying, like, we're full. Thank you. And while that's not true, ostensibly from, from what people are experiencing, we have to build local communities. This global food system has proven that it doesn't work on multiple different levels, but it's incentivized by corporate profits or what Anthony Gustin called the corporate organism on a, on a, on a different episode of this show. Yeah. I love Anthony. We were talking about him before the show. <laughs> I'm here in Austin, but it is. And we're full. So I, I've heard of so many of these stories of even shoes. They're like, oh, let's get all these shoes to Africa or these poor countries. That just disrupted the entire bit, their economy. And it put all these shoemakers out of business. You know, there's all these unintended consequences. And I don't know if there's a video on this or, or some more information somewhere, but you can look it up. And it's amazing. You're like, oh, yeah, of course. Right. These poor people, they're trying to make a living making their own shoes. And they, they were doing okay and getting their fellow community shoes. It's like what happened is all these other food, well, to tie in the food thing, is all these cheap grains came in for free, (laughs) right? They got dropped off there. That ruins their farming system. People, you know, now had cheaper or free grains and then they could spend money elsewhere. It screwed up everything. And then they, they needed to get free shoes. You know what I mean? They were doing fine before when they were making their own food, making their own shoes. When big interest came in, it screwed everything up. And so I, I got on this tangent because if to feed the world, you feed your community. You don't just start at the top and try to do it on the way down. And it's the same thing that this greater good notion is being used against us. Like I said, health-wise, COVID stuff, climate change, whatever it is, you got to think about it differently. Think about it as how can I help the individual, myself, my friends, my family, my community. If I get myself healthy, if I don't spend a ton of money on healthcare because I am eating the right foods and have a good lifestyle and 
you know, all these things that you can do to help yourself is for the greater good. I have no burden on the healthcare system because I don't use the healthcare system. That could be saving millions of dollars over the course of my life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. So. I mean, in a, we live in the United States where healthcare spending sits just below $4 trillion per year. What would that change? You know, with single diabetes, patient is $14,000 per year in the healthcare system. But if every diabetes patient realized or they were even told that they could reverse their diabetes, their type 2 diabetes with diet and lifestyle, then maybe some of them would. Or what if we focus on that? What if we spent half that amount to give them programs and guides to actually do that? I, I The world would be completely different, but of course, that's never going to happen. And that doesn't profit the powers that be. And they're just going to be like, type 2 diabetes is a slow, progressive disease. There's no curing it. Just take more insulin. You'll be on more insulin for the rest of your life. There's no proven way to reverse type 2 diabetes. Yeah, all the doctors I know are doing that on a daily basis with simple dietary changes and lifestyle changes. Yes. Okay, so we find this, ourselves at this point where we're sick, we're indoctrinated and dependent on systems that were designed to make us dependent on them and centralized. And we want to get back to living a more ancestral human lifestyle, living like a human within the context of modern society and decentralizing, what what do we do? Well, you could take each topic separately. For the food part, people already know, if they've listened to your show before, <laughs> know anything about you or I, you know, you go to local ranchers, right? You find people using regenerative methods and you buy it straight from them. I tell people, you don't have to order it on nose to tail. You can also just go, you know, even use your site where you can find yep. where, where they're located near you. I tell people to go to westonprice.org. They have a, a tool where you can find ranchers in every state and milk, you know, raw milk and all these resources. Go to tell people all the time. I lived in LA for so many years of my life, concrete jungle. Yet there was four farmer's markets that I could bike to. <laughs> Right. Like this is that you have no excuse, really. So with the, the food stuff, you just need to, to go just be simple again. I have a little story because I was Thanksgiving weekend, you know, visit some friends of family of friends of family. There was some distant connection. I was in Arkansas of all places. And these people were like gluten free, like, oh, I'm gluten free. I'm a nutritionist. And they were all they're eating is highly processed products. And everything was gluten free. And it was bags and bags of fake breads with 30 ingredients and all this stuff like you and they were not doing well. They're sick all the time. You know, this whole story like why we're sick for like the eighth time in the past three months. It was insane. So I'm like, okay, you need to get simple. We need to, don't, yes, gluten-free is a good idea. Instead of getting all the processed alternatives, just don't eat the bread. <laughs> Who needs it? Like, why don't you just eat real food? So that, I mean, you can get meat, you can get eggs, you get vegetables, you can get fruit, you're done. Like you don't need anything else. We've, we've not had anything else, if, you know, for most of history. And the, the bread is a whole nother story, but you know, it was raised differently, different systems, different kind of breads, fermented, all this type of stuff. So food, obvious one is just eat real food, eat animal foods. You know, I don't need to preach to the choir. The other stuff's a little bit harder because <laughs> then you have to start <laughs> going into like homeschooling. You know, it's like, how do I get out of the system? Well, there's also al alternative schools, too. I know they're popping up around here. You'd, you could either do group schools. There's Montessori type schools. There's uh, I forget the other names for them. Right. I don't, do you know any other names? Forest schools. Um I mean, it, it's tough now. It used to be Waldorf. I think that's that's in a different situation now, depending on what your views are. 
but I think that there is a return to that. And I think one of the things that my husband and I talk about, we don't have kids, but we've talked about it. We've talked about schooling is that the way the state education is the experiment. Homeschool is the, is the norm. That is what it is to be human is to raise our children in a, in a pack, in a community with us learning on the job as it were and, and not in state funded education. What's called, I call them government schools now. People call them public schools. <laughs> I've got a great meme. It's like, there's nothing public. These are not public schools. They're government schools. Like, and he just goes through the whole thing. It's like, who funds everything? It's just a government school. So yeah, I know it's hard, but try not to use the government school system. They're only going to pump out what benefits them. Uh, what else is there? There's finance stuff. I'm actually not super sure about Bitcoin. A lot of people think Bitcoin's a solution. I don't think so. I think it's another kind of tool or weapon that's in disguise. And I think there's been some stuff going on lately that's that, well, I don't want to get into the FTX stuff, but I think some of the stuff with the cryptocurrencies, it's like a controlled demolition, basically, to bring in regulations around this stuff and also to normalize and usher in a central bank digital currency, CBDC. And I think this is all coming. So we kind of touched on it earlier about these, like what's going to the future going to look like. And I think it's central bank digital currency, right? So it's like this, oh, it's like Bitcoin, but it's like the better one because it's the government. And I'm like, oh, wait, so that's just something that you guys can control. And it's already happening in China. And it's been happening for years where they have all these systems like from the social credit score to even just you even since 2017, they, they got fine. You could there's so many cameras that if you jaywalk, you just automatically get deducted a certain amount of money. And that started in 2017. Yeah. So I think there's a future. So you have a central bank digital currency. They're like, oh, well, you didn't well, yeah, you didn't get this certain treatment. You didn't, you know, the, the next pandemic, you didn't follow the rules. You didn't stay home. You didn't do this or that. Okay, well, now you just can't use your bank account anymore. Or we can just deduct a certain amount of money. Or the climate thing, I think, is really going to play into that because they're already starting to do, like you said, there's the taxes on animals. And so pretty soon it's going to be, okay, well, we've shown that cows and ruminant animals are bad for the climate and there's a tax on that and you have a limit. So now you've hit your your carbon quota for the week on red meat and milk and you can't have any more. And they have the things in place, which looks like it's headed to with the apps and the you know tracking apps, monetary systems, digital currencies, then they can actually control it. Then it's like, okay, well, you can't, your, your card, your whatever, or your digital money doesn't work on meat products anymore because you've hit your quote for the week or the month, your quota. So this stuff is all happening right in front of us. And you can kind of see it happening as each kind of disaster emergency that's unfolded. It, it's always an opportunity to have more control. If you, I don't know if people have noticed this, like even like the Patriot Act, it's like 9-11. Okay, now there's this huge sweeping list of new laws and things that have happened. Every, everything that happens, yeah, there it's just an excuse to have more control and more laws and take away freedoms. And so I, it's no conspiracy what's going on. It's, it's heading to this thing of controlling what people eat, how they move, how they spend money. And it's based on the guise of greater good and of the climate and of your fellow citizens and don't kill grandma and all this. And it's it's like so obvious. And then to, to the rest of the world, no idea what's going on. Like I talked to my brother back in Hawaii. Everyone in Hawaii is brainwashed. They're stuck in this little island. I'm from Hawaii. Uh, but they, uh, I go back often. I'm like, you guys are just 
ready and willing to take whatever the government tells you and go along with it. I think sometimes too, though, it's comfortable, right? Like to, to sit on the precipice of what I think is a lot of change within the world and to imagine what it is to go outside of the system. It's uncomfortable. Like it's uncomfortable to think about homeschooling your kids and sourcing all of your food locally and completely overhauling your diet and not tapping into the sick care system and overhauling this belief system that has been purposefully instilled in you. And so that is something that I at least like to hold in this is that it's uncomfortable and it's not easy, especially when we haven't been taught how to think. We've just been taught what to think. Well, you're so right. You're so right. I've thought about this a lot. And I have a great mentor in this, a guy I grew up with in Hawaii, actually, who, who's kind of clued me in because he got red pills about 17 years ago and has been looking. He's the one that's kind of showed me all these primary sources. He doesn't send me, you know, blog posts or like little memes or Instagram videos. He sends me, you know, firsthand documents of like what happened in the last hundred years. And it made a lot of sense to me. It's like, okay, if my brother was to change his views, it would ruin his life. His wife doesn't believe in this stuff. He, he would get fired from his job. He, you know, like so many things could happen. It's beyond just comfortable. It's you are stuck in the system and it's, it's almost impossible to change your thinking without ruining your life. You're and institutionalized. Without, and by design. Yeah. And, and then so anyone who thinks differently is labeled conspiracy theorists. So I think just like the quackery thing, it's like the conspiracy theorists, I think, is another big thing by design, you know, anything that goes outside the system. But then we're like, wait, but that was proven to be true like 10 years later. And you're like, no, you're still a conspiracy theorist. And so it's designed that way. And I can see why people don't want to change. And I know that my brother, I, I try to get through to him a little bit, but then he's just, he'll reject it. It's almost like you're, it's this cognitive dissonance where I can see him start to understand it. And then the next day, he's like, yeah, but I have my normal job. I'm my family. Like, I'm in this system. And if I start to think that way, like my brother, I will lose everything. I could lose my marriage. I could lose my job. And so then they just snap back into the matrix. I think you said the magic two words here, which is cognitive dissonance. And I think as we talk about a lot about this that cognitive dissonance keeps coming up. My husband and I, whether we're talking about electric cars and where people think the energy comes from when they plug it into the wall or what it takes to mine lithium or whatever piece of that supply chain, or we talk about the sick care system, or we talk about some of these quote unquote, you know, what has been deemed conspiracy theories is cognitive dissonance. And it's, it's that inability to see past the veil and to be able to hold it and you'll see it and then you'll just kind of push it off by design by design and i'm glad that yeah i did go to a good school in hawaii actually well now they turn really woke and i don't i, I wouldn't go there anymore i used to think it was the best school ever but they actually taught critical thinking it sounds kind of like your guest that taught how to think instead of what to think and and i think that actually really benefited my life and some people that have come out of the matrix uh, i mean a lot of my friends from that school do still have the ability to critically think. And it's hard. It actually takes maybe years to even get over that cognitive dissonance. And you have to like really step back and like try to unlearn things and unthink the way you've thought. And it's not easy. And yeah, you said uncomfortable. A lot of things are uncomfortable. Yeah, changing your diet is, is uncomfortable. No one wants to change. Again, I was with friends, family in Arkansas. The doctor told them, you got to stop eating this food. They, no matter how, you know, it's got the second stent, whatever heart problem, you know what I mean? 
the whole thing. The guy's not doing well. Won't change. Will not change. He was sitting there eating Pop-Tarts and the daughter's yelling at him. I'm like, you wanted info from me. I'll give you the info. He won't take it. But what I try to tell people with the uncomfortable part is, and this is what I try to tell him. Once you get to the other side, it's just as good, if not better. The change is uncomfortable. Yes, I didn't want to change my diet nine years ago. I loved eating, you know, whatever. It was just like processed foods and delicious snacks and whatever. It was just easy and cheap and packaged. And I thought it was great. And now I realize I hate that food and I don't like to eat it. And it's it's better. Like I said, it's either the same or better on the other side. It's the change is the hard part. And something with humans, it's like they're so resistant to change because they're like, the dad's just like, well, I mean, I eat Pop-Tarts. I, he was eating Pop-Tarts one day. He had Eggo, the freezer waffles the other day because that's just what he does. And I'm like, you realize if you were just eating some bacon and eggs, you would like it more, right? But And I know he likes bacon. And, you know, I talk about the, this stuff. He's like, you love meat. He's like, I love meat. You, it's like, okay, well, you're... People have this idea that they're going to go on a diet. Well, because all the diet advice is wrong. So they have this idea that they're going to go on this diet and it's going to be salads without dressings and rice cakes or I don't know what people eat. Deprivation. Yeah, deprivation. And it's going to be plant-based and it's going to be gross and they're not going to be full and they're going to be miserable. And I'm like, yeah, that's the normal diet advice. It is terrible and you you will be miserable if you follow it. I'm saying there's a whole different new diet out there of embracing animal foods and just ancestral foods and whole foods. And it's delicious and amazing. And you're going to love it. You just have to And get you're going to feel better. And you're going to love thriving. You're going to love having that vitality. We got to get through that uncomfortable part. And that's the biggest thing to, to try to get people to do. And some people won't do it. If we contextualize this in the what it is to be human, and uh, that's come up so much in, in this podcast, what do you think it is about being human that we want to stray away from discomfort, that we want to shy away from it, that we we don't want to go through it? Or do you think that's a part of being a modern human, that we don't have that exposure to uncomfortable, right? We live in temperature controlled environments and we, you know, it's seasonally controlled and we have these cushy chairs and all of these different things. We don't do a lot of manual labor pointing at the farm because I stacked three cords of wood yesterday. We don't have to do these things that are uncomfortable. Do you think it's something about being human or just a modern human? Mm. I think it's it's half and half. So modern norms, I made a diagram years ago and it was it started with it was like a flow chart and it started I called it modern norms and it flowed from that within eight levels to every single disease and obesity problem we have as a society. And it all stems from modern norms, which is basically eating bad food, convenience foods, this like taking shortcuts, like our modern lifestyle, right? Everything about it is working against us. So I say it's half of that. It's how our modern society is set up is, but the other half is the human nature is to take the path of, the path of least resistance. So I think humans are hardwired to do that. And I, I visited Africa actually with Anthony Gustin and Dr. Paul Saladino. They kind of got sick from eating berries with the Hadza and they left <laughs> early. But I... I was there and uh, we crossed paths and then I went on for 17 more days and I and I learned a lot. And these hunter gatherers, they they're kind of like us. They're not they don't don't want to do work, right? It's not like they want to do hard work and a lot of their life was really chill. Like I actually said it, it just seemed like they were on vacation. It's like what is their life? It's like, well, they were on a permanent vacation. They're hanging out, they're posting up with the homies by the fire. They're playing music. 
and they're singing and talking. And then they like go run out and, and hunt for, you know, a couple hours. Maybe sometimes it was three hours, sometimes it was eight hours. And then they'd come home and chill. And like, so humans don't, you know, it's not like they were trying to do work, but they actually, I think throughout history, we found ways where we could get a lot done and not have a lot of effort. And it was a lot of socializing and hanging out and fun and amazing happiness. And I don't know this study. Have you heard of these studies of they looked at modern hunter gatherers and they actually only worked like 20 to 30 hours a week. Like they, they actually collected f- all the food they needed in 20 to 30 hours. And so, yeah, I think, I, I think it's probably way easier back then. Cause another thing I learned is how bad, uh, modern hunter-gatherers have it because they have no land because the government has pushed them off their land. They pushed all the animals onto the game reserves. And these these are all, you know, there to make money. They, they make all that. It's again, it's always a story of the government pushing people off their land to make money. So they make tons of money on the game reserves. In Uganda, they make tons of money off of the mountain gorillas. And these poor Gabatwa, these are the pygmies. They're pushed out of the forest. So they spent their whole existence living in the forest, trapping animals and gathering food. And, you know, we, we interviewed this lady. This lady was over 100 years old. And so for one, they're living in squalor. They have no land, they have no resources, they have no skills. And they're living on the edge of this forest where the government makes like $600 per tourist to go on a gorilla tour. And so it's really bad over there. And people may have heard of Justin Wren. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast for years talking about making, uh, uh, digging wells and helping the pygmies because they've been kicked off their land and they have nothing. And so back to the Hudsons, they're, again, kicked off their land, government making money, the whole story. And they don't have the big animals they used to have. They don't have the land that they used to have so that they could acquire food easily. So I guess one thing I'm saying is I think it used to be very easy to acquire food. I think we we're very good at it. All the technologies we invented were around acquiring food, and we were good at it. And Dr. Bill Schindler has a great quote in the film that we've already edited about that, that we were good at it, and we were successful and we didn't get here by scraping by. We got here by thriving. You you don't think about having sex or having babies if you're about to die. No. <laughs> That's the no. last thing you think about. You're just trying to survive. But no, we thrived and we got where we are today because of that. And so we used to be good at getting food and we used to have a lot more abundant animals. And now these hunter-gatherers are still chill, relaxed, doing great, healthier than Americans. And they, even with the bad land they're on and very few animals, and they don't have the large animals that we used to have. You mentioned something in there that I I really want to tease out. As I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking about your Sapien Center in Austin. And I was thinking about community as a nutrient, that community is a big part of what makes us human. And in talking about your time with the Hadza, you mentioned something really important. They actually don't work a a 40-hour work week or a 60-hour work week or whatever it is that we think of as a work week. And they spend, you know, this time hunting and getting food and gathering food and preparing food. But the rest of it is spent in community and in enjoyment. And I think that that is as much a part of what it means to be human, to form these communities this case, maybe these decentralized communities that we're talking about throughout this podcast and to be in that space together, laughing around a fire. 
It's it's one of the pillars of being human. I think it's the food. It's some it's movement. It's some sort of like outdoors, which you can count vitamin D and sunshine and time in nature and community. And, and in community, you could you could capture you know stress free living and all that stuff. So these are the four pillars of being human. I think that Sleep. these. You missed sleep. sleep. I wrote oh. these down. I wrote sleep. these down. I wrote your five pillars yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Sleep is one of them. Absolutely. Sleep is the fifth one. And sleep is so huge. So huge. It's actually the one thing that I uh, sacrificed the least. I mean, I did eat some weird foods over Thanksgiving weekend because I was traveling. And I, yeah, and I mean, I mean, I did have more allergies and I didn't feel great, <laughs> but I didn't sacrifice sleep. I never sacrificed sleep. Huge, huge. But these five pillars of being human, they're also the five things that you can't hack. You can't cheat nature in these things. And I, I want someone to prove me wrong because there's a lot of ways we've hacked nature recently. We have airplanes and we, you know, we can fly <laughs> across the world and we have so many cool things and iPhones and amazing gadgets. But you can't hack nature in these five things, yet so many people try. And I think they they always fail. And it's like a lot of our problems are stem from this. And yeah, and, and like, I don't think there will ever be a pill that you could take. So you sleep four hours, but it's like you got eight hours of sleep because you took the pill. No, I don't think that is possible. Prove me wrong. I just absolutely do not think that's possible. And I think one of the interesting things is so many times when we talk about hacking them, we're actually just talking about getting back to the ancestral space of them. Like when we're talking about hacking sleep, we're talking about viewing morning sunrise and getting getting full light in your eyes. Or we're talking about sleeping in a very, very dark room. Or <laughs> not having yeah, blue light at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Look. Well, that's the solution. So, okay, there's two ways of saying hacking. So I'm saying what you can't hack is a workaround, that a pill that will just get you that sleep. You can, quote, hack. Well, I call it, okay, I hate the term biohacking. I call it ancestral hacking, right? So ancestral hacking is exactly what you're saying. It's using ancestral methods to get to have a better way of doing things, right? It's, it's looking to the past. So it's like, what are those doing? What are, It's just mimicking how we used to live. So that's why they work. But like for exercise, you can't, there's never going to be a machine that exercises for you. The whole thing is you have to do the exercise. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You can't do the weightlifting for you, right? So that's, and I think that's with food, you're never going to make a synthetic meat that's better than real meat. Real meat is a miracle, right? It, it, it's like animals that co-evolved on these grasses for millions of years that can feed us the perfect nutrition. You cannot hack that. I don't care. What you say is in it and the macros and what else? I interviewed Dr. St Stefan Van Vliet, who's so amazing. Okay, yeah, he's good. incredible. So he's getting into this, the tens of thousands of secondary compounds. You cannot mimic that. There's absolutely no way. And I, I call it like alchemy. It's like you're basically trying to do alchemy. These the powers that be, they're trying to create gold out of lead. It's never going to work. It's impossible to do. You can't create a food that's better than red meat that's raised on a diverse diet. You're never going to get the secondary compound. It's like physically impossible with the universe. It's like, how are you going to get all these compounds in there without having either the same amount of energy or more to get them there. Exactly. And that's the, that the same amount of energy or more. I want to tease that out. I don't know if you've ever read. There's a gentleman in Kansas named Wes Jackson. He wrote Consulting the Genius of the Place and Becoming Native to This Place. It's kind of a Wendell Berry contemporary. And he developed actually a perennial cereal grain, speaking of grains, called Kernza. And he has 
this full idea of a sunshine study where you look at the energy inputs of of everything. So if you look at the energy inputs of a cr- tractor, how much did it take to mine the steel? Or how much gas did it take for the steel lobbyists to drive around and that we can go out further and further? And I think when we're talking about food, we can't create these secondary compounds in a in an impossible burger without using more energy than it took to just create them in nature in this perfect space. And I think it goes back to echo something that really struck me in this conversation. You can't skip a step. Mm, yeah. People try to skip the step. They try to make money. It's also, yes, I love Wendell Berry. Uh, Gabe Brown, you know, read his books. I love all these people. Uh, David Montgomery, we've read oh, Dirt to yeah. Soil. Yeah, he was on the pod. Him and Ann Bickley were on the podcast a couple of a couple of months ago. Amazing. And so basically, a lot of their stuff can be summed up as it's it's kicking the can down the road. It's basically a short term thinking. And so we think it's better. Like you're saying, we can use a tractor and we think it's better. But what you're doing is kicking the can down the road as in either well and or not even look understanding the full impact of what you're doing. And it, it's, it's like we would just especially in the, when we first came to America and we just would destroy the soil and move on. You know what I mean? Or, or it's just these things, these repercussions are going to happen later and we don't know it yet. And we're not factoring that in the cost. I guess that's what the big message of these guys are saying is that, yeah, it seems like monocropping is good and that we're getting a good deal, but we're not. Like cosmically, it's impossible to do better than nature. So all we're doing is not seeing these repercussions for 30 years down the road. And, you know, we're, we're seeing them now. Now the soil is depleted, you know, it's turning to dust, all that stuff. Which we knew. I mean, the Dust Bowl happened and we we knew this. And I think that one of the failings of where we are as humans is this sort of reductionist Newtonian or Cartesian ultra reductive view of things that really keeps us from seeing that long term vision. And I also think that we're limited by human time scale, that we have this idea of it, things only happening in 50 to 100 year spurts without seeing the the full picture of what it means for a thousand years or 5,000 years or a hundred thousand years. Well, that's another limitation back to like being human and, and how this all works. And if it's human nature, it's like there is a limit on what we can grasp. And I don't think humans are good at thinking our brains just aren't set up to think on a thousand year scale. So, but it, it's interesting because it used to work. We didn't need that type of thinking to survive and thrive throughout history, right? Because we could think, I mean, we, we kind of had some long-term thinking. I think we obviously didn't hunt every single antelope till they were dead because we realized, oh, wait, we need more antelope. <laughs> like we can't kill them all. And so I think we did have some of this long-term thinking, but it wasn't like we had to think on thousand-year scales and it worked. But it's like our modern society now doesn't work if we don't think on those long-term scales. And I think delayed gratification is a huge concept of mine that I love, not of mine, but it's something that I love <laughs> because I think how I've done some things that I that I'm proud of are because of my long-term thinking, right? I think a lot of success is from, and, and I mean, that's the whole point of the study, right? The marshmallow experiment is the kids that didn't eat the marshmallows had the, and that had the delayed gratification had more success in life. And that's kind of, yeah, I think how maybe, I don't know which side I'm on this on, you're, you're asking about human nature, you know, like, are we set up for this or not? And, and some people are more set up for delayed gratification. And sometimes it's against our human nature though. Like, 
like I, I think I think a lot of the problems is and then the powers that be in the corporate systems prey on the lack of long term thinking. They prey on the, the immediate gratification because most humans want the immediate gratification. So yeah, I still haven't figured out my stance on this because it's like all the modern society is set up around immediate gratification. And so obviously that's being exploited and obviously that must be some sort of human shortcoming. You know? Well, you know, I'm curious, and and you might know more about this than me, but when you look at dopamine, I think a lot of it is is set up to serve some of these circuits that are hardwired from a hunter-gatherer setting, right? Like dopamine is the space where as we pass a shrub covered in delicious sugary berries in late August, and it's an unexpected reward, those dopamine circuits fire so that we can remember, oh, at this time of year, in this place, I found a food that that will help get me through winter. And all of a sudden, we've set up society around something that was hardwired into our brain and the way that we think as humans, but it can be exploited. And I think that the human organism is incredible that we're capable of looking at that and saying, okay, this is how I'm responding. And I don't want to do that anymore. How do I begin to shift this for myself? Or how do I begin to shift into more long-term thinking? You know what I was just thinking? I think maybe the people listening, the my crowd here in Austin, the, the crowd that I know, the great people like Tara Couture, <laughs> maybe these are the people that just have that delayed gratification that somehow we've popped out of the matrix or popped out of our human immediate gratification dopamine world and have been able to just think a little more long term. And maybe that's a big difference. It's like that family friend that I mentioned just cannot have that long term thinking. He cannot think I want to be around for my grandchild who was just born and he wants to. He loves that little guy. And they had such a good time seeing him this weekend, but he still is eating the Pop-Tarts. You know, it's like, but then some people have, have just been, we've popped out of the matrix into long-term thinking. And I think that's what all the people I know have. They have the delayed gratification. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. And <laughs> I think that's a good question. And I think how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture, because I think it behooves from an evolutionary standpoint for there to be members of a group that think long-term and members of a group that think short-term. We need both within the context, but they need to be certainly in a different balance than they're in now. But I, I think that's an, mm, is it delayed gratification? Maybe. So I like Dunbar's number, right? 150 people is what humans are supposedly the, the limit of how many people we can hold in our social circles and, and, you know, actually know and interact with. And that's supposedly, you know, different size tribes. I, I mean, some could have been 50, some could have been a couple hundred, but it kind of revolved around that for all the history. So I think one of the major problems maybe with society at large, if you really, really zoom out, is we're just not meant to live beyond 150 people. And so that that when you're saying short-term thinking, I think if we did live in, say, we'll just call it 100, band of 100 people, then maybe we could do thrive and do amazing with some short-term thinkers, some long-term thinkers, some, you know, great hunters, some great gatherers, so, you know, all this stuff, and it just works. And when you go beyond that and all the problems start happening and Egyptian pharaohs to peasants and 
nowadays. And I guess uh, what's, what being human is about is finding your tribe of 50 to 150 people again. And then you can have more of that delayed gratification and some of that short-term thinking, but it would, would work better. And maybe, yeah, that's tied into the people that I'm seeing that have success have created their own tribes, right, within society. And I think that's kind of my main goal. You mentioned the Sapien Center that's here in Austin. It's basically just a community center. It's like a hub. It's just a place for us to be and get together and make our new tribe so we can still have our normal society and we can still exist in it, but we kind of have opted out while still being in society. And I think it works. It's actually great. I mean, I don't go out to eat. It's, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm living here. I live near downtown Austin. I'm in the thick of things, but I just don't go out. People are like, where do you go out to eat? I'm like, I don't know. I don't go out to eat. <laughs> I just make my own food. Like, I don't need... I have no interest in going out to eat. And this is another little side point. I try to explain to people, you can't use willpower to change and, and just constantly rely on this willpower of like, oh man, I want McDonald's so bad, but I'm not going to do it. That's not going to work. But what when you change your thinking, when you don't want the McDonald's, then you're not using willpower, then it works, right? There's a huge difference. Some So many people try to white knuckle their way through diets and cut calories and they're just like... It never works. That's why 98% of diets fail, whatever the statistic is. Why it works for people I know is because we don't want those foods anymore. Going to McDonald's is not appealing anymore. Then you don't have to use your willpower. And then it's just great. It's not like I'm sitting here wishing I could go to some restaurant. I have no interest in going to that restaurant. Hmm. I'm, I'm still thinking about the difference between willpower and changing your thinking. And I think that there's something... It's not just about what you don't want, but it's about what you do want to go back to that idea that when you stop eating those foods or when you're, you know, when you're eating all these delicious animal foods and you're cooking all of your own meals and you feel great. I know that a lot of what drives me not is the change in I want to feel good. Mm -hmm. it, it's huge. It's, it's a longer term thing. Again, the long term thing. It doesn't happen overnight. Excuse me. And I didn't, it, this didn't happen for me overnight. I remember nine years ago, I was trying to do all the hacks. You know, I'm like, oh, I could get like a keto bread or something. I don't know. I was like trying to just do all these different things. Doesn't work. You got to just, it's, it is a long term. It's like you have to have the positive reinforcement of I feel better. You have to have the negative reinforcement of I, yeah, I don't I feel bad when I do this. Yeah. Or there's repercussions. <laughs> And eventually it happens. And yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to take anyone under a year. I think we're talking about a year scale to do any of this stuff. It's like, it's not like you're going to go from loving McDonald's to not having zero thoughts about going there in less than a year, right? It's definitely going to take time, but it's worth it. It's also, okay, community, go back to community. I think a huge factor of success is having that community around you. Because if this guy's just in Arkansas with everyone doing the same things around him, he's never going to change. I saw like little bits of change when we were around him or when he visited LA. And then and, and then that's what I actually chalk up a lot of my success to is I changed my community. It's like I got together with people around me that wanted to change our diet and lifestyle. And then it was second nature and it was supported by them and it was encouraged and it's completely different. Completely different ballgame. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's why. Yeah. yeah. It, it is. Oh, actually, I had another thing about community I wanted to talk about is the blue zones. I hate the blue zones because it's bogus and it's fake. And this guy, Dan Buechner, wrote a stupid book. And he <laughs> basically was like a veg you know, vegetarian type of person that went around the world. Oh, well, I don't know, seven or nine, nine, maybe nine places to see what he wanted to see. Right. But what he did find 
was that there was so many other factors to health and despite what they eat. Like he, he tried to conclude that you should eat mostly plants from that whole thing. And a lot of people try to conclude that. Well, my conclusion was, my God, they, these people had very diverse diets and they, a lot of them were healthy despite other things they did because they had such great community and they had the strong bonds and they still worked into their old age and they walked up and down the, the you know, the mountains to, to like get to their food source or, you know, their local market and that their, their diets were all different. And he, and actually my good friend, Mary Ruddick is a nutritionist and travels the world with me. And she took me to Africa. Actually, she helped set up the trip and she's been to a lot of these blue zones to debunk them. And basically they're, they're all like nose to tail animal food eating places. Like, she went to Icaria in Greece and they just, they're eating everything from the animal and they have amazing sense of community and they, even they smoke and drink. But despite having, you know, moderate alcohol and tobacco consumption, they're doing great because they did all these other things correctly. And, you know, community is so important. And I guess the, the biggest themes I saw from the Blue Zones was the importance of community and stress-free and purpose and life and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I think I think community is incredibly important, and I love everything that you said. And I think that Blue Zone study, like to look at it through that lens, that all of these people have really rich and robust communities, and that that is conferring health as much as as much as these wonderful animal food based diets, you know, that it is a constellation of things. And I think my husband and I talk a lot about this, that we have lost the town center, the church, you know, whatever it is that brings a diverse array of people together to support one another. And it's actually one of the things I've found the most in farming in this. I live in a very rural community and I depend on my relationship with my neighbors who think and eat and are different than me, but we have formed this tight knit community. It's I, I like the concept of third spaces and this is something I'm coming, trying to do with the Sapien Center. And this is, I just watched a video about it. it. It was so interesting to me that we used to have the third space. So the first, you know, it's a home, then it's your work, and it's a third space. And it used to be a town center. It could have been a library. It could have been the town square. You know, there was mm -hmm. some of it, a lot of it was bars. Actually, nowadays, it's only bars. Our, our only third spaces are bars. And it's kind of the opposite of what it should be. It's a bunch of people, you know, short-term relationships and, and people, whatever. It, it, it's, not, it's not what it... Based around a poison. Yeah. yeah. It's not what uh, the third space should be. So I think we need to revive third spaces. And there's many ways to do it. And it, um, yeah, I mean, it, what you said, you're just getting together with your community, whether or not there is even a physical location or not, or, you know, but... Also, oh, one thing with the Blue Zones too, Whole Foods was the the, the through, throughput, the main through line in that. It's these people were eating mostly Whole Foods too, right? It wasn't that they're, well, they were eating animal foods, but it's like, yes, they all had diverse diets and the common theme was Whole Foods. They weren't eating, it's not like he went around and they were like, oh, well, this one eats McDonald's and this one eats like boxes of pasta. <laughs> it's or like gluten-free bread. Yeah, there was no They're gluten unadulterated whole yeah. foods. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I well, the community I hadn't heard the term third space and I this is this feels really critical to me because I think that community is such a big part and so I'm excited to see how Sapien Center evolves and just what that brings to the community because I think it could really provide a benchmark for creating more of these 
third spaces in other in other areas. Oh, well, we want to expand. That's the whole idea is to go around the country. So if anyone, I, I'm taking notes on, um, you know, anyone who contacts me where they live, it seems to be kind of congregating around Florida, Nashville, Colorado, sort of these, I don't know why those areas, I think they're, I don't know, people were just interested in more healthy living. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think it's fantastic. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know that we're running, running up against 11 o'clock and I, Can I throw in one more thing? Yeah, yeah. It's like my little left of field from this conversation. I just want you to touch on, because I love this so much, satiety. And it's a little bit out of what we've talked about. But I love listening to you talk about satiety through the work that you talk about with Ted Naiman, but also from Stefan Van Vliet and Fred Provenza. And I I think that this is an important just little nugget that I don't want to leave on the table. Oh, yeah. I love satiety. It's so important. (laughs) And I'm glad you brought it up. And it it does tie in a lot of things together. And I think it really helps people to think about this. It's well, okay, why do people overeat? Everyone's fat and sick and no one wants to be right. No one wants to be fat and sick. Yet somehow we're here. If it was simple as calories in calories out, people would have been able to just eat fewer calories. So the question is, why do people eat too many calories or the wrong calories? And that comes back to satiety. And and satiety is very tied into level of processing. And if you think about the satiety of a food, it's really the level of that it's been processed. And the more it's been processed, the worse the the satiety is. So a good example, it's like a soda. It's like, Mm-hmm. You, a Dorito. A bit less satiating than a soda. It's not like, oh, I had a soda six hours ago. I'm full. <laughs> no, like you're, you basically will probably get hungrier from it. Because if you just drank a soda, your blood sugar would go up, it'd come back down, and you'd probably be really hungry two and a half hours later. So satiety is everything, I think. It kind of is a common theme of all good diets. And it's it's kind of why whole food diets are good, because they're in their whole food matrix. And especially mm-hmm. ones that include animal foods with proteins and fats that keep you full. And phytonutrients, secondary. And all the secondary compounds. It's, oh man, yes, I did talk to Fred Provenza as well and Stefan Vliet and all this stuff. And he studies it in animals. And I think we need to study it more in humans and, and how this is what keeps you full. There's a new, there's a protein leverage hypothesis, which me and Dr. Ted Naiman are, are all about. And I read the books and, you know, there's these two researchers, Robin Heimer and Simpson and I think they're about 80% there. But basically, they're saying our human, all organisms, actually, they extend it to all organisms, eat until they reach a certain amount of protein. And if the food doesn't have enough protein in it, you're going to still eat it until you get that amount of protein. It's a very elegant theory, and I think it holds. And I like to extend that to nutrient, like like the nutrient leverage hypothesis. And I think Fred Provenza has done some good stuff to show that, that, you know, organisms eat until they get a certain amount of nutrients, and protein is a nutrient. Right. So in the film, we talk about the we basically just talk about this concept in simple terms around nutrient to energy and that that's kind of what matters. And it's like, why are animal foods good? Why are whole foods good? Because they keep you satiated for the right amount of time. So you're not going to eat too much. And I know it's more complicated than that. You can get into like the microbiome and the gut and all these other problems. And if you're having additives and chemicals and, and pesticides, of course, these are all bad. But it's like half of it is satiety and half of it is just not having toxic foods. Yeah. And I think to kind of bring it home, I think that we need to be satiated with life too, right? Like community is part of feeling sated with your life and your purpose and your community, right? Like there's 
there's satiety in food and I think it's incredibly important. I love hearing you talk about it. And just now thinking about it, I think there's satiety in other spaces. That's so good. That's so good. I'm going to have to use that now because <laughs> I have been talking about this. I interviewed a guy, Dr. Tro, who is an obesity medicine guy. He has, you know, he's just really good with helping people reverse their obesity because he himself is a doctor. And he was like, I'm 250 pounds. Like, what is going on? Lost like 80 pounds, normal weight, looks great for years, held it up. And what he saw in his clinic, big, he has a big obesity clinic, 75% of the people had traumatic past, childhood issues, childhood trauma, sexual abuse. These are the people that are coming in who are overbeat, overweight and obese because they have a hole in their heart and they are not satiated mentally. And a lot of people eat because they're sad, they're depressed, they're bored, even. These are holes in their life. Wow, that's so good. It's kind of the unifying theory of everything is that if you aren't satiated in these human aspects of life, right, which is community and proper nutrition, then you're going to be looking for, you know, more. And more is usually processed foods. Yeah. And in some ways, processed life. Like I would, I would argue that virtual reality, that some of these things are just hyper palatable, hyper processed, you know, mimicries of life, a video game, a Netflix series, whatever that you're, you're looking for satiety, but you're not going to find it in the television or in your can of Pringles, whatever it is. So true. I'm so against all like the metaverse stuff and even alcohol and drugs. Again, people know that that's it's pretty well known that those are people, you know, who are unhappy with life and looking for more. And what's also great is I've noticed a lot of people reach out to me saying that they stopped drinking once they changed their diet. It's really interesting. They just didn't have as, as much of an interest in anymore. And that's what I found around Austin, too. It's like, no, none of these people, no, no, we don't drink around here. The Saving Center is great because it's just, it's a place to go that's not a bar and it's not about alcohol and it's just about community. I love it. Well, if people want to find out more about how to become more satiated as a human and what it means to be human, where can they find you? And when does Food Lies come out? We are working on it constantly. I think it's actually going to be in the summer. So we really got to finish it. Turned into a six-part series now. So, but it's it's going to be really good. Go to the Food Lies YouTube channel. Watch the intro. It's a three and a half minute intro that we hand made. Thank you. Yes, we spent a lot of time on it. It and shows. Thank you. And and Food Lies on Instagram. That's where I do most of my stuff. Just go to Food Lies on any social media platform, whether it be you know YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having this conversation. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited for everybody to hear it. Just grateful for your time. Well, thank you, Kate. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.